the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown podcast. I'm James Miller, author, journalist, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. And frankly, there is no hope for me whatsoever if I don't learn more from today's podcast. For I have in front of me a Brexit Brains Trust who have just launched another UK and a changing Europe report into No Deal, uh, No Deal Brexit Issues, impacts, implications. Uh, in fact, I've so much expertise ranged in front of me uh, that we couldn't fit it all in this room. Uh, we were meant to be joined by Anand Menon, Director of UK and Changing Europe. Um, but if he, he was here, uh, we'd have had a dangerously high level of expertise, apparently, uh, according to the health and safety people. So he's had to go off and talk to Sky News, where they're running short of expertise uh, after <laughs> last night's uh, shenanigans. So in front of me, I have uh, three professors... So John Curtis, Jonathan Portes and Catherine Barnard, all senior fellows of the UK and a changing Europe. Let's start with the report. Jonathan, what's in it? What's new about this? Well, I think there's there's an interesting paradox about the report. There's an awful lot of detailed material analysis here, which I'll talk about in a minute, which describes what we know about the uh, impacts of a no-deal Brexit. Mm. But if there's one overarching theme that, to my mind, run through this report, it's that no deal means uncertainty. Um, So there is this idea, um, understandably, people are completely fed up with Brexit. You may be an exception and wanting more. But I think, Mm. um, as John will tell us, there is a very large section of the population which not unreasonably says, can't we just get the whole thing over and done with? Can't we sort it? Um, And I think what this report says is that if you think that no deal means Brexit, that's it done and dusted, we can go back to, uh, A, our regular lives, and B, sorting out all the other problems the country faces. That is just wrong. No deal will mean a prolonged period of uncertainty. We won't know. uh, There's a lot of uncertainty about the impacts of no deal, both in the short and the long term. And then no deal will not stop us having to deal with the unresolved issues uh, relating to the future relationship between the UK and our largest trading partner, the countries that are cl- the, lar- the countries that are close to us, all of those st- issues will still have to be resolved. And as Catherine has written in the report, negotiating that longer-term e- UK-EU relationship will not only have to be done after a No Deal Brexit, but it'll be considerably more complicated and difficult, especially for us in doing so. So No Deal is not the end of Brexit. In fact, as I say, you know, in the words of Winston Churchill, um, it's not the end of Brexit. It's not even the beginning of the end. It's probably just about the end of the beginning. But given the amount of uncertainty, um, what's the point of the report? Well, what can you actually put in a report? <laughs> well, so let me start. Let me talk about the two areas that are my specialty and that I've covered in the report before letting the others talk. Uh, um, so I cover two things here, uh, the economic impacts and the impact on uh, um, EU citizens living here in Brits uh, uh, in the rest of Europe. So what do we know about the economic impacts? We know for certain there will be tariffs and other customs checks and non-tariff barriers on UK exports to Europe, and that will reduce trade um, and be a significant hit to the economy. That is a certainty. Um, So we know that. 
um, and we know that the economic impact of that will be significant and negative. We also know with reasonable certainty that that in itself won't cause a financial crisis or the implosion of the British economy um, will survive. There won't probably be huge panic on the markets. The pound has already fallen most of the way that it has to fall. That stuff will be actually damaging but manageable. That's what we do know. What we don't know is the the wider indirect impacts of that. What will happen to business and consumer confidence and what will therefore be the second round impacts on the economy? Uh, and that is what will make the difference between a significant but temporary hit to the UK economy from a no deal and a long lasting, severe and very painful one. That's one example of known what we do know and what we don't. Similarly, for citizens' rights, uh, 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 we know that... Uh, um, on uh, that, that actually uh, uh, there will no be no big immediate negative impacts for UK citizens living in the rest of Europe or Europeans here. Uh, no one is going to deport them overnight uh, or, or make them ir- illegal migrants overnight. Uh, most people will at, uh, over time get some form of settled status, but uh, there will almost certainly be increasing divergences. Um, in the rights of, of uh, those citizens over time. Uncertainty will grow over time. Um, and uh, how that will pan out, just how difficult will be the situation of, uh, uh, of EU citizens here? How will the government distinguish between people who arrived here before Brexit Day and people who arrived here after Brexit Day when we don't have the systems in place to do that? How will the different countries of the EU who, after Brexit, will have to take their own decisions on how to treat UK citizens uh, uh, living, uh, uh, living in their countries? How will those divergences mount? How will that make people's lives difficult over time? And how will that affect migration flows? Those we can make some guesses about, but there are some big unknowns there too. How is it going to affect real people? There was some discussion at the launch about how much people understand about what no-deal Brexit is in the first mm-hmm. instance. What do we know about that? I mean, I know, obviously, uh, Jonathan and Catherine, you had a, a minor disagreement about this, and I don't know if John has, has researched well, into was, what people there, know. There, there was a bit of a debate about this a while ago, and I'm just trying to remind myself of what it says. I mean, I think essentially... I mean, there were some attempts to, to, on polls to ask people, what do you think no deal means? Um, they certainly don't think it means that uh, we are maintain a current position vis-a-vis the European Union. Um, whether or not they necessarily appreciate that, um, frankly, um, no deal simply means uh, is simply a punctuation stop, stop in a process that will still keep going. I'm not sure. But frankly, I think you could probably say the same thing about a deal as well. I think, don't think you're not sure how many people realise that if we strike a deal with the European Union, that's only about 10, 15% of what's sorted, actually sorted, and we're going to be negotiating uh, thereafter. So the extent to which that wider issue of well, the extent to which people realise, well, negotiations would continue, whether either a deal or a no deal, well, I'm not sure whether the polls have, have ever really got up. But I, I think it would be a mistake to believe that people think the no deal simply means we carry on as we are. But whether they, whether they appreciate the full implications, I'm not sure any polls really ever got into. Um, would you agree, Catherine, that people don't... People, I don't know what we're talking about with people, but in general, people have a very limited understanding of what is going to happen after October the 31st? I think that's right for the simple reason that politicians haven't actually told them. Um, And they haven't actually told them that um, this is whether we leave with a deal or no deal. Uh, Leaving with a deal will make, facilitate a bit 
what the future negotiations would look like. Probably they will be less acrimonious um, and uh, it may also allow space for having uh, smaller deals over things like movement of goods first and then build upon it. Um, but if in the case of no deal, any future discussions will also have to factor in the things that were already in the deal, i.e. citizens' rights, Northern Ireland border and the money. Now, as far as the money is concerned, you could argue there might be an advantage because um, where David Davis said um, sequencing was going to be the fight of the summer back in... <laughs> oh, I remember that. I remember that. If you remember, in fact, actually, the EU got its way over sequencing and the EU said, we want the money up front, essentially, and then, you know, down the line, we'll negotiate the terms and the future arrangement. Now, you might be able to say there is an advantage about us leaving with a no deal. In reality, I think things will be so acrimonious it'll be very difficult to get things going. The legal provisions are much more difficult once we're out, whether we leave with a deal or with a no deal. And that constrains how the negotiations will take place because the EU is governed by the rule of law. And the rule of law says, to be precise, Article 218 of the treaty says um, the Commission will do the negotiations. It's got to be given a mandate by the um, Council. And the Council um, may have to act by unanimity if the deal is going to be broad. And so it's going to be difficult. And the fact is, any future trade deal with the EU, were it ever to come about, will require trade-offs. Because the fact is, any deal requires trade-offs. And this has never been clearly explained to people. You know, cakeism, we hear much less about it now, but it's Mm -hmm. actually got into the sort of DNA. It's possible to have, be outside the EU, but to have lots of the benefits of being in the EU. Oh, no, it's not. Um... And John, you touched on this upstairs uh, in the launch. Um, the framing of whatever happens on thirty first of October, to some extent, is really important yeah. in that regard. I mean, you know, Catherine said uh, she thinks there's a limited chance of actually getting a, a, a ongoing uh, free trade arrangement if there's no deal, um, and there will be acrimony. And again, the framing will be a huge part of that, right? Yeah, I mean, if we leave without a deal. Um inevitably you know who is thought to be responsible for that is going to have an impact on how the public reacts so to put it at its simplest if the reason why we're leaving without a deal is because leave voters in particular decide it's to do with the uh, obdurance of the european union and that they just weren't willing to renegotiate then the polling evidence such as this suggests that, you know, actually we might get something of a swing of public opinion in favour of leaving without a deal. That, that indeed was a reasonable, court of, a reasonable course of action given the options before us. On the other hand, if they were to conclude that perhaps the reason why we didn't, why we're leaving without a deal is because UK negotiators were adept enough at finding common ground with the European Union and that you know seems unlikely with the great negotiating team we have um well that's for you to suggest to me not to comment on um but that um we that insofar as they come to the conclusion is just simply you know we couldn't reach an agreement and you know it wasn't the european union's fault and maybe you know uh we, we weren't uh, clever enough at negotiating then polling evidence suggests that maybe public opinion on balance went in the opposite direction so remember with all politics the blame game is crucial 
and that who gets who to whom blame is attributed is not an automatic process. I mean that said, insofar as you know, from where we're, if we look at polls that just simply ask people they're for or against, well, frankly, leave voters are in favour. Remain voters are against, so therefore, when you look at the electorate as a whole, the balance of opinion looks quite even. Probably slightly more people in favour of against no deal, simply because the people who didn't vote three years ago seem to be not that keen on ideas. It's, uh, it's leave voters alone, not anybody else who's in favour. Uh, so it's not, it's not obvious that it's going to be wildly popular. The question is whether or not you could shift enough voters to them to uh, accept that actually, given the circumstances, given the attempts that have been had, given the alternatives on offer, this was the better course of action. Yeah, I've heard you say before, don't trust the non-voters um, to necessarily <laughs> turn out and vote again. No, no, but, 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 you've got to be very wary but, of, of them in, in all of this. No, they're, sure, they're, no, they're the key to it, but no, sure, no, do, yeah. sure, I mean, but, but you, know, in, you know, the point is that otherwise, we have, you know, Remain voters are opposed, Leave voters are in, are, are in favour, broadly, you know, the, that's... Statement is broadly speaking true, but it's also true that if you look at the electorate as a whole, there's slightly more who are against no deal than in favour. And the reason why is the views of those who didn't vote three years ago. But now, of course, we're not talking here about a referendum. It's simply not yet. Not yet. If we're we're, we're simply talking about, you know, where does the balance of public opinion lie? Um, And it is slightly against. But that and it's because of the views of that group. Um, Just given what we've just mentioned about the lack of knowledge about no deal or lack of understanding or lack of curiosity, whatever you want to call it. And that's why this report is out and this is why this report is valuable. Does that show the limits of the polling? Because, you know, it's all very well asking people whether they're for or against no deal, but if they don't really know what it means. Yes, but for so long, I mean, assuming I accept this premise of your question for the moment, which I wouldn't necessarily entirely. Right. The point is, if that's where public opinion is at, and that is where public opinion remains, so far as understanding of what no deal would mean. Then um, uh, the truth is that's the answer you're going to get. I mean, I mean, look, you know, do not underestimate the extent to which amongst many a Leave voter, the view basically is: look, if you're telling me that it's very difficult to get outside of the European Union. This just goes to show why we should never have been in the institution in the first place. Its tentacles are far too deep in our society, and we therefore should just make the best of a bad job, cut our losses, and get out. Because at the end of the day, for these voters, this is a question of legitimacy. They do not accept the legitimacy of the European Union being able to have a say in what happens inside the United Kingdom. And if you're of that view, ultimately you are perhaps going to be willing to take the kind of hit that Jonathan is talking about and you may not be too fussed about the legal difficulties that Catherine is talking about because above all what you want to do is to reclaim your freedom i.e. your right uh, that this country's right to not no longer have to follow the rules and regulations of the European Union. But there's a paradox isn't there? Because the paradox is that those very same people who say that will say we can trade on WTO terms and it's replacing Mm. one set of external control albeit I admit, a much more a constraining set of external control, the EU, with another set of external control, the WTO. And the argument is the WTO is much less legitimate than the EU because uh, the rules are there, agreed by 100 and whatever countries, whereas... Well, uh, yeah, sure. The, the, bro- the, the, the broader paradox in what we might call the global Britain libertarian uh, leave view is that somehow or another making... Uh, trade deals means that we can negotiate what we want 
Whereas in practice, you know, it doesn't matter if it's with the European Union, whether it's with South Korea or Japan or the United States or whatever, it's going, you know, we have going to have to give them something for them to give us something. And to that extent, at least, we are ending up negotiating the kind of arrangements that we currently have, but we negotiate through a rather more formal process and a more permanent process with the European Union. Of course, there are then things beyond that. And, and of course, some trade deals also have implications for immigration policy, though that varies um but so sure um there are paradoxes about this but of course again i guess bear in mind that i suppose the two things that people on the leave side would say in response to that well the first is at least there isn't a political project with a free trade deal it's not about us having to pull our sovereignty then we can decide whether we like that trade deal or not um so i i think they will take that view the second argument they will make is why tie ourselves so much to the European Union, such that we cannot make our own trade deals with the rest of the world. And that the view that the argument that's commonly made is that the European Union is too sclerotic with the, with the speed uh, with which it deals with trade deals. Now, I know the argument against the argument against their direction is that a little wee country like the United Kingdom is not going to find that easy either. But you know, these are the arguments that, that, that people will use and have been used on the Leave side in order to argue why certainly why Brexit needs to happen and why no deal is not something that they necessarily feel unhappy about. And of course, it's also then to do with, you know, it's also your, it's all to do with your views about them and us. I mean, those who are in this camp, basically, many of them are people who regard the United States as us and Europe as other. And therefore, they're more willing to compromise with the United States than they are with Europe. And again, that's again another aspect of legitimacy. You're, you're only going to be willing to share pool sovereignty and share decisions with people whom you feel are on your side of the fence. And um, for many, you know, you only have to hear the rhetoric of many a Leave politician to realise at the end of the day, they don't trust the European Union and they do not regard it as a club of people, of, of people whom they regard as the part of us that they wish to be part of. Um, I want to talk about the impact in more, more detail. In a, but just briefly, given what you said, and when we talk about the impact, what's going to happen after, particularly after if there's a no deal, because that's what the report covers, mm-hmm. would you expect public opinion to shift? Well, um, you know, I mean, I'm not the, saying what those impacts are no, just sure, yet. Of course if, the, if, for example, there's a recession, would you expect there to be a, a reaction? Well, two, I'm not two, saying in what direction, two, but two, a reaction. Two, 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 I mean, two points to make. I mean, one is, I, I'm, uh, I mean, I think, you know, it depends on uh, what we're talking about here. Now, if we take Jonathan's prognosis, which is basically... There's going to be a bit, bit of kerfuffle, but actually probably there's not going to be the almighty queues at the border that perhaps some people are talking about. And at the end of the day, he's telling us, you know what? We may not be just quite as rich as we otherwise would have been. Mm-hmm. So if we don't have the dramatic pictures of lorries uh, piled up at Dover and Calais, if we do not have stories right. of diabetics being unable to mm-hmm. get insulin... And actually, well, if we get a recession, but the point is that basically we're just not we, we, we're just not as rich as might otherwise be. Well, as otherwise yeah. might be is something mm. we will never ever experience, and about which we will endlessly argue. So therefore, public opinion won't necessarily no, shift. But if we but do, on, but, but on the other hand, sure, yeah. I mean, I think the point is if 
if the short-term consequences of Brexit are more deleterious than even Jonathan is suggesting, and as a result, you know, remember a picture is worth a thousand mm. words, and we do have pictures of lorries, you know, we do have people on the television saying, I can't get my insulin, what am I going to do? Then that could perhaps make a difference to how the public reacts. So how is it going to affect me? Jonathan... Uh, you know, even Jonathan says John. Even Jonathan and his terrible vision of doom. Um, I'm a person. I like eating food sometimes. Uh, my sister-in-law's French. Uh, my daughter got some new asthma inhalers yeah. yesterday. I mean, I'm a fairly average person, I'd, yeah. I'd imagine. Um, what's going to happen in, in November? What well, am I? What actual okay. uh, tangible result? You know, changes am I going to see? So I think, as I said, I think we can be fairly sure that there will be. A fall in the pound, so the prices will go up because imports will be more expensive. There may be right. some shortages of specific foods, so you may, strawberries, one that's often well, it's mentioned. November, they're going to get strawberries in November. Oh, okay. Well, you yeah, do we get do strawberries in November yeah, these days. I don't buy strawberries in November, right. but yeah, okay. Uh, um, <laughs> uh, uh, people, if, tomatoes possibly, things like that. Those are the sorts of things that the, uh, uh, the, the that supermarkets and the Food and Drink Federation have been talking about. Um, but you're not going to starve. Um, okay. we, you know, we're not going to run. Live without strawberries and tomatoes. You can live without strawberries. We can and still tomatoes. get porridge coming. Uh, we can still get yeah, porridge, yeah, and yeah. Uh, um, you know, uh, uh, and we can still get. You know, we'll still get uh, 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 the price of cheese may go up, but will the price? Uh, but but it won't be that we won't get cheese of one sort or another. So that sort of thing. Uh, so but prices just, will go just, up. Just on, um, just on that though, just but, briefly on the food. I mean, you know, November obviously Christmas is right. Yeah. I mean, are you saying my Christmas dinner is going to be significantly more expensive? Oh, yes. I think that's highly okay. likely that your Christmas dinner will be more expensive. Um, what about your uh, your French sister-in-law? Well, um, no one's going to kick her out of the country. Um, she's not going to lose her job. Um, uh, it may be more difficult for both you and her to go back and forth between here and France, because you may have not because visas will be required initially, but because you'll have to go through the, uh, the non-EU queue um, and... Uh, anybody who goes regularly to continental Europe know that the, the capacity for that is not it's not straightforward. Uh, um, so there may mm. be some some disruption to transport uh, links. Uh, again, I don't think it's going to be catastrophic. I think the the wider question, though, and this is where I get back to uncertainty, is is the wider impact on business and consumer confidence, and whether that in turn leads to a more widespread recession. In which case, of course, some people may lose their jobs. Some people will lose their jobs. Uh, and uh, the, the confidence issue is—it's um, oh, magic, really, isn't it? I mean, you can't—you well, can, can, can't measure it. You don't—you can't. Well, this is this is why uh, this is why it, it's very difficult to make short-term economic forecasts. With what we're talking about here is what Keynes famously described as animal spirits of mm. bi- businesses, in particular. Um, and uh, we saw after the referendum that, uh, to a large extent, the the, the forecasts that there would be an immediate, large negative and immediate hit to the economy based on that hit to consumer and business confidence was wrong. Because actually, after the referendum, after an initial flurry, people sort of shrugged their shoulders. They thought, actually, nothing much is going to happen on the ground for mm. a couple of years. So we should just go back to business as usual. Now, since the, however, although lots of economists did get those short-term forecasts wrong. Actually, the medium-term forecasts of the impact of the Brexit referendum have not been that wrong. We have suffered a significant hit to growth since the referendum. We are 
uh, as an economy a couple of percentage points poorer than we would otherwise have been. We are a less prosperous, less productive economy. We saw a significant hit to real wages. Um, uh, so economists do get forecasts right, but you shouldn't really take um, economists' forecasts of what might happen in the next four weeks very seriously, which is why I'm very cautious about being more than quite general about these impacts. Um, other real-world impacts that you might see. So the drugs thing is a really difficult one because uh, you know, and I don't. None of us, I think, would claim to be an expert here. Um, to my mind, and I say this more as a former senior civil servant than an economist, mm-hmm. my view is that look, the government has thrown quite a lot of money, money which frankly could have been better spent doing something else, but there you go. Uh, a lot of money, resources and people at this. It should not, you know, we are not bad at emergency planning and crisis planning in this country. We're maybe bad at a bunch of other things in the public sector. We do know how to do these things. The government really ought to be able to manage things so that we're not short of insulin, we're not short of essential drugs. It may cost a lot, but we should be able to do it. So I am skeptical that there will be widespread shortage of drugs. On the other hand, we do have people who know more about the subject than I do uh, uh, um, uh, in the medical profession who are indeed very worried because of the complexity of the supply chains and who say that even a modest amount of disruption could uh, could in principle impact. So uh, that I think, you know, it is very, very difficult to make predictions about complex systems with complex interactions. It's mad. We're sitting here talking about whether people are actually going to be sick and die because of this part of it just yes. how did we how did we get here uh, and we haven't even mentioned uh you know the the, <laughs> the biggest problem with all of brexit northern ireland um yes and what think, the hell think, happened there catherine I, I think the traders there are particularly exposed um, yeah if you're a person in northern ireland um well what's your biggest concern is it the economic hit or is it the the potential return to violence i mean I, well it's both i think for for businesses particularly small businesses i think the economic hit is going to be really quite serious because they're going to be faced by a, a, a double triple whammy and that is that um if they are importing goods from the eu uh, there will be uh, additional costs because they, they're probably buying in euros. They've got issues about having to pay import tariffs on goods going into from the north to the south. And they will also be subject to a VAT regime, which is infinitely less um, agreeable than the one at the moment, involving quite a lot of upfront costs, although there are some attempts at trying to mitigate that. Um, and so that's from the business point of view that's already a problem also remember if you're trying to get your goods physically you're buying Mm. from Spain or from Poland yeah never mind paying for them you've got to get them actually into the country and remember what they do what's happening at the moment is you get a Polish company will act as a courier of those goods and they can do the trip with two drivers in a day if they discover that there are hold-ups at Dover and then also to get them across to Northern Ireland, um, if they're going through Holyhead and into Dublin and up that way, there's further risk of hold-ups. You, you then have your courier company saying, well, actually, we're going to have to add to our, our transport costs quite considerably if they agree to do it at all. So the geography of Northern Ireland is already a problem. And that's as far as the just how to manage a small business. The... The other issue, which we know is potentially much more serious, is the implications of the peace process. 
and the Chief Constable of Northern Ireland and the Deputy Chief Constable have both said they are really concerned about having any type of physical border. Now, we know that there are various attempts to think of their ways around it, these alternative me means, alternative methods, alternative arrangements. But the trouble is a lot of them are dependent on having essentially a border shifted elsewhere, but still it will be mm. de facto border, and trusted trader schemes. And the problem is this raises all sorts of complicated issues in Northern Ireland. If you are... A Catholic, how willing are you going to be on a government list to, for, that you're a trusted trader? You can see the problems that start to rear their heads. Talk of having drones trying to spot what's going on on the Northern Ireland border. I think it's catastrophic because you know I mean, the idea of having things flying over the very sensitive border areas in around Fermanagh and London. It's the the real problem is Northern Ireland is a deeply intractable problem, which is a multi-layered. Um, and it, there is no easy solution. The genius of the Good Friday Agreement, because it was adopted in the context of EU law, meant that a lot of things could be facilitated without actually having to have them formally written down in the document. So, for example, free movement of goods, which is written down in the EU treaties, um, could be facilitated. Good Friday Agreement essentially says there will be no physical borders, um, and free movement of goods under EU law facilitated that. That's being turned off in the event of a no-deal Brexit. The, both in the context of Northern Ireland and more widely, this is a really important point about both uncertainty and risk. I think John is absolutely right that central to how this plays out politically will be the blame game and the incentives on both sides, from the on both the UK government and on the EU governments and the Commission, will be to blame the other side, mm -hmm. to blame the other side for a no deal, to blame the other side for the imposition of a hard border in Northern Ireland. Um, and the danger with that is, um, in terms of the actual impacts of no deal, is that it makes a way out far, far more difficult if both sides are blaming each other. It makes it, for mm -hmm. example, back to what Catherine was saying about the money, if it's politically impossible for the... Because we're blaming the EU for everything that's gone wrong, it will be politically impossible for us to continue to write large checks to the EU. Equally, if we're not paying what the EU regards, rightly or wrongly, as our moral, legal and political obligations, it's going to be very difficult for the EU to come back to the negotiating table. Um, and remember, as I said, you know, none of this is going to go away. So mm. on road transport, this is a really important uh, area. The reason why no deal is not going to be nearly as apocalyptic as people were saying a year ago, one of the main reasons is that the EU has given a unilateral temporary mitigation allowing lorry drivers basically to carry on not completely, but more or less as normal mm. in terms of where they can drive between here and continental Europe. Well, that derogation, that or that temporary mitigation, comes to an end on December 31st. That's only two months after no deal, right? Oh, okay. um, uh, you know, what's going to happen? If that sort of thing gets switched off, then we are in really quite uncharted territory. So the the, the risk for me is, is not just what happens on day one, is that the politics um, and the real world, key, and, and similarly in Northern Ireland, if, if, you know, the incentive for the British government to blame the Irish government for its intransigence and say the Irish are responsible for this new hard border and vice versa is again doesn't matter what you think are the yeah, rights and wrongs are it the intent like, of this spirals out of control to my mind are, are, are really 
And these mm. these mitigations that Jonathan's talking about, I think we've got to be clear, these are not mini-deals. They no. are unilateral. <laughs> They're decisions taken by the EU, and likewise the UK has taken decisions, particularly, for example, over having a very lenient tariff regime, mm. which, as a footnote, mm. of course, creates a disincentive for the EU to negotiate over goods because they've already got pretty much what they want unilaterally because the UK has done it unilaterally. But mm. I, just to be clear, this is not; these are not mini-deals that Jonathan's talking about. These are unilateral decisions by the EU which can be withdrawn at any stage. Unilaterally. Yeah. Um, is it possible, you love a graph, John, is it possible to draw, plot a graph with support for Brexit at one side and along the bottom, bad things? So price of tomatoes goes up. How does that affect it? And cumulatively, you get price of tomatoes going up, you get lorries at the... Is it, and is there a, can you plot that graph and then there's a point at which support for Brexit drops off a cliff? Is there a sort of... If 10 <laughs> bad things happen... The support for Brexit, no, I mean, the, you know, or does it does it hold hold firm amongst you know levers? I mean, for, for for many levers, they'll hold firm because they'll blame the European Union. And bear in mind that many of the people you're talking about, they don't go on holiday to Europe. They don't can't necessarily afford to buy strawberries in December, mm-hmm. and they're not necessarily um, a, a great eaters of tomatoes. They still um, celebrate Christmas, though. Uh, they do, but they want you know, to buy Lego for their but, but but they may have the sense to grow their own potatoes and their own sprouts, and therefore it won't make any difference to them. Well, that's that's well, that would be a good thing. There we go. That was going to be my next question. What would be what are the potential upsides of No Deal Brexit? <laughs> are there upsides of No Deal Brexit? I think it goes back to sequencing. It may be that if the money is um, the EU needs the money, hmm. the EU will have a large hole in its budget if that thirty nine billion. Um, isn't paid now. There's lots of dispute about whether it's 39 billion. Actually, some of that 39 billion has already been paid because of the extension that 39 billion included our membership fee. Um, But um, you could say that finally we could use the money as leverage in a way that Boris Johnson um, has long maintained it should. And the levers have said we should have always used the money as leverage to get better trade terms. But from my point of view, as a man who eats food and uses medicines and knows European people, is there an upside to no deal? I mean, can I walk, can you measure the fact that I can walk with my head held high as a proud independent <laughs> Englishman after the, after the 1st of November? Does that have, have, I mean, the, the, does that boost the economy, that people sort of feel, if they're told that they're now free and, and all the rest of it, will they spend I, more? I don't know. I, I think that's pretty unlikely in current economic circumstances with the general global economic picture is not very pretty either um but i think uh, um there will be some i mean you know so so some tariff you know because we will have a fairly uh li- very liberal tariff regime in general post brexit so the price of some uh goods will indeed get somewhat cheaper so th- things presumably we import from outside the open union yes exactly. really get cheaper. Yeah. yeah what's that barbecue um, charcoal we're back to this. This is like <laughs> episode two of the podcast. We discussed barbecue charcoal. Um, it comes some, from Paraguay. Some clothes, footwear. Uh, I think ceramics, things like Can't that. Eat them, some, though. Can't, uh, <laughs> we're going to uh, start eating shoes. This doesn't. I mean, there there are some food products. I think there will be the case. I'm, um, you know, so for example, I think tariffs on wine from uh, Australia. So your French wine may get ah. more expensive, but your Australian wine may get a bit cheaper. Um, so there, there, there are trade offs. I mean, I think what's the potential um, upside? I mean, I, I think um, there, there are some, at least indirect, um, 
you know, I think one upside we've had already from my point of view is someone who thought that uh, um, the government's fiscal strategy over the last eight years has been pretty, uh, um, uh, has been badly misconceived and done a good deal of unnecessary economic damage. Well, the government has thrown the Osborne hmm. Cameron fiscal strategy in the bin and good riddance. So that's a plus. I think that you can argue that I mean, maybe no deal will be a shock to both sides and having gone to the brink and over it, um, that after a few weeks, people will, quote, come to their senses and there will be some new deal. I have no idea what it might look like. I think that's unlikely, but it's not impossible. And then finally, you know, there is an argument. Um, I don't know whether John has a view on this, that, that anything, given the, the way British politics has as I'm straying a bit outside my normal lane here, mm. given the way British politics has evolved over the past two years, anything o- other than a no-deal Brexit at this point would, for a very large section of the population, that represented by both the Brexit Party and a large section of the Conservative Party, would have led to a betrayal myth. Brexit would have been absolutely fine if we hadn't been stabbed in the back mm. by the Remainers in Parliament, by the civil servants, by the academics and the experts, mm-hmm. and all of that. And if there's a no-deal Brexit, well, that that at least is taken away. There, there can be no betrayal myth. It is, you know, the country will have got what those that group said we voted for. And for better or worse, we may be able to move on. I don't know what your view is on Well, I'm not sure whether we'll move on, but I agree, <laughs> certainly um, the betrayal myth will become much more difficult if indeed um, uh, we leave without a deal. We're obviously... Um, you know, frankly, any kind of deal with the European Union will potentially be open to a betrayal myth, because certainly at the moment, at least, it's not obvious that anybody has spotted a deal with which all or even maybe a majority of Leave voters would be happy. That, again, is one of the reasons why we're in the pickle that we are in. I mean, you are all experts. I mean, you know, broadly, Catherine, your expertise is law. Jonathan, your economics and John, your politics. Uh, you know, we've discussed how this all sort of comes together in No Deal Brexit. Do you actually feel anybody's listening? Well, you are. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> and the good be folk are listening to our people, podcast. Uh, you know, more broadly, do you think people are listening now? Or, you know, are they going to suddenly start putting you up with a week to go and go, what's going to happen? I think it's worth pointing out that, I mean, this has it's been a gargantuan exercise for the country and for the civil service mm. and government. And they can only really uh, proceed by by pigeon steps um, rather than great kangaroo leaps. And so, and essentially what we're talking about, you know, how difficult the next few years are going to be in terms of how to negotiate a future trade agreement, the problems that will be associated with that. The public has, isn't ready for that because the public is, is, has got to be brought along. Um, I mean, I, I would be critical of, of the government for not even starting the process of, of, of telling the public about what's going to happen next. But nevertheless, this has been a tremendous shock to the whole system. Um, and therefore, to be telling people that it's going to be difficult in 2025, when we're still in 2019, we still haven't left, is still pretty mm-hmm. important. Okay. In the unlikely event, this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. I mean, we haven't had time to discuss the most eye-catching line in the whole report, which is that the uh, budget for the Get Ready campaign is equal to that of a blockbuster film, <laughs> which lends itself to a whole game of who would you cast and what would you call it. Um, save that for another podcast. Um, so I've got. What would you recommend to understand No Deal? So um, I have got um, Ivan Rogers' um, piece from the Spectator 
called The Realities yeah. of a No-Deal Brexit. That was just no. this week or something, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. uh, 2nd of September, and it's long because that's what he does, but it's <laughs> extremely well written, and it does, and of course he's been on the inside, so he knows the problems of yeah. um, negotiating with the EU in all sorts of ways. And actually, I think what's really interesting about this is people often say, oh, he's a Remainer, blah, blah. Um, but in fact, you know, he's always been rather critical of the, how technocratic the EU has been mm. and how it's failed to take on board some of the legitimacy issues that John was talking about. Um, but nevertheless, he really makes it pretty clear the problems of um, negotiating a future trade deal. John, you got anything you could recommend to understand what may or may not be about to happen? I'm not sure I've got anything to recommend about you know what's going to happen because the truth is this is a story that is moving on so quickly, hour by hour. I mean, to be honest, if you want to follow what's going on, you need to follow the live web pages of the BBC or the Guardian or similar because very often the story moves on in that uh, very quickly. Um, and certainly if you're going to follow what the uh, political shenanigans of the next few days about whether or not we get an election or not uh, before no deal, I think you certainly would almost undoubtedly have to follow those, which are excellent, not least because they collate a lot of information mm. from a wide, wide, wide variety of sources. So um, if you're really fixated by this, follow the live pages. Jonathan, you got a recommendation? Uh, well, obviously, I would say uh, read our report, No Deal Brexit, Issues, Impact, Implications on the UK and a Changing Europe website. But beyond that, I would say actually go to the gov.uk stroke Brexit website um, and plug yourself in or your friends or your family or your business that you know it gives you all sorts of options to describe yourself are you a uk or a european citizen do you run a business if so what does that business do plug that all in um and follow some of the links to what it advises you to because that will give you a, a quite a good picture of i think three points comes out of that first of all just how wide-ranging the impacts are this isn't just about tariffs there is a hundred different links and things that will be a consequence of energy breaks that's the first thing the second thing is that on some of those links you will find good useful uh um and practical information um from the government on what you need to do which you may well find useful and shows that in some areas we have done a good job of preparing um on other areas you will find uh links which you where you ask yourself why am I, what am I doing here? Why am I here? Um, why have they pointed me to this? Or what on earth are they talking about? I don't understand this. It doesn't tell me anything useful. And I still don't know what I need to do. And that illustrates that in some areas, actually, um, the government is still flailing around as to what the impacts and consequences and what people are to do. So it will give you, I think, if you spend some time there, you get a, a good picture of the complexities and uncertainties that, as I said, are involved in a no deal. OK, listen, we'll finish there. Uh, and I'll say thanks to my guests, to uh, Jonathan, Catherine and John. Catherine will be back in a few weeks' time, along with Anand for... Uh, podcast live we're doing podcast live again do you know this Catherine oh that's oh, good oh, news oh have I surprised you there <laughs> oh well apparently you are uh, on October the 5th in central London uh, ticket details are online uh, please come yeah we're coming to the end of a chapter and the UK and changing new report on no deal may well be exactly what everyone needs to navigate the next chapter uh, you can read and download it at the UK and changing Europe website 
which is UK and EU.ac.uk. You can get in touch about anything in this podcast via that website. You can also contact us through Twitter or Facebook uh, and visit my website, james-miller.com, to see the full list of Brexit recommendations. This has been the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK in a changing Europe, supported by King's College London and funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council. Uh, Thank you for listening and uh, buckle up for whatever comes next. Thank you and goodbye.